Father God, uh, as we have offered our hearts to you in worship, um, I pray that you would now uh, offer your spirit to us in empowering ministry. I pray, Lord, that you would fill this house and brood upon your sons and daughters and grow us up a little bit. I pray that we'd all be changed a little bit before we leave. I pray, Father, for an atmosphere of, of listening, not just to what I say, but to what your spirit is speaking directly to our spirits. We find that place to connect with you, Lord, our maker and the one who knows us best. In the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, let me just say as your brother in the Lord, be knit in. I just have a sense in my spirit that some of you have been coming for a while and you still just kind of feel like an isolated alien. That's, you know, that's an attack against you. In the name of Jesus, sit in your place, be comfortable, be here, be us, because the Lord has something in store. Uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for your ministry. Uh, be with us the rest of the way. In Christ's name, everybody says. All right, so uh, we're going to start with the pop quiz. Everybody clap once. Everybody roll your shoulders. Everybody crack your neck. Everybody get ready to go. All right, pop quiz. Here's the question today. Are you ready? What does it take to be a strong person? What does it take to be a strong person? I will give you eight seconds to think about it. What does it take to be a strong person, a strong individual. Go. No copying from your neighbor. What does it take to be a strong person? Okay, that's enough time. What does it take to be a strong person? Trade. To be able to surrender. Okay, well, this is provocative. Strong person, surrender, mm, that's a paradox. Let me ask you, surrender to, to what? To surrender to God, okay. And for that, you get, um, you're going to get a, a Blue Water Mission pendant uh, made, by, made by Faith. I got, I got, I got bling today. I don't know if you guys know Faith Navasca yet. Where is Faith? Oh, she's way in the back. She makes cool little things and uh, bookmarks and pendants and refrigerator magnets. So let me ask again, (laughs) courtesy of faith, what does it take to be a strong person? Yeah, you know. See, again, with this paradox, it takes weakness to be strong, say more, and a lot rides on your answer. (laughs) Having experienced weakness and in that moment asking God for help. So just not caving, but looking, okay, all right, so here, line, line, good, 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 good take, Auntie. Her uh, faith is spelled T-R-Y bookmark, huh? All right. I will accept more answers. What does it take to be a strong person? Obedience. Obedience to God. You get a bookmark. Why are you sitting down? All right. Two or three more. Strong person. What does it take? I'm going to interesting answers now. Who's got a weird answer? What? It takes a redhead to be strong. You have that backwards. It takes strong to deal with a redhead. <laughs> completely, completely missed that. Yeah, but that. Consolation prize, though. Consolation prize. You've run with some redheads. You should know better than that. Callie? Determination. Determination. I think, yeah, that's a give me. You want a bookmark or a refrigerator magnet? The magnet. All right. John. Jordan, take this over to Auntie. One more. What does it take to be a strong person? Who am I pointing at? Mary? Being able to admit your limitations. You guys are so mature. Uh, Being in touch with your limitations. There's an and. 
to that. Being in touch with your lim- admitting your limitations and asking for help. We have that one. And come on. You, you have, you're a limited person, but you know the strength of God. I was looking for, you do it anyway, but, uh, but I think you're in the ballpark there. All right, with, uh, with, with, with some bling, I tell you what, we are up in our game around here. This is we're getting downright professional, reputable. I don't know what's wrong with us. Um, <clears throat> nobody asked me, well, what do you mean by a strong person? Um, because, you know, your eyes were filled with that bling. Um, and uh, that's an interesting question to ask yourself. What, is it, what does it mean to be a, a strong person? Uh, I think about that a lot. Uh, it has, on one hand, something to do with resilience. You know, you can take a blow, you can keep going. Um, I think it has something to do with, with influence as well and impact. Uh, my down and dirty definition is resilience plus influence. You know, no matter what happens, you keep going and you have the effect that you want on the world, or at least um, some of the effect that you want to have on the world. You keep going. Here's the, the question was, uh, what does it take to be a strong person? What does it take to be a strong person? And, and here's my answer. See what you think. You're a strong person when you can choose your re- response to situations. I think you're a, you're a strong person when you have the capacity to choose how you respond to given situations in life. When, when the situations don't program you, but where you kind of run your own program in the midst of the situations, the circumstances. You may not be able to control the circumstances, but you're able to choose freely your best responses to whatever the circumstances are. I think that's a pretty good definition. Uh, our job at Blue Water Mission is, is, uh, is to answer Jesus' calling, to uh, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, or to bring the order of heaven uh, to earth. And that's a big job. It manifests in different ways. Uh, but we do this chiefly by making powerful people. That's kind of how we choose to do it. What we're, what we're trying to do as a community of faith is to develop individuals into powerful individuals. Um, we're trying to make uh, people who are both powerful and good and of course, good means godly people, which means that, that you have uh, the ability to listen to God, to be obedient, to discern his will, that sort of thing. It's possible to be powerful and ungodly in the world, uh, though that will lead to destruction and instability. So here's the deal. You are here, whether you fully know it or not, because you want to be a powerful person. You are here today because you want to be a powerful person. That's what your soul wants. That's what your spirit wants. Now, you might think that you've come just to find a little kindness. You might think that you've come to find comfort. You might think that you've come to find fellowship, little ohana, all of which are super important uh, purposeful things. But God also brought you here to become the powerful version of you that he has in mind. I just think that's the truth. Uh, that's his mission for you. That's our mission for you. And I'm suggesting that ought to be your mission for you. You should become uh, the strongest version of you. Uh, I would say it this way. I would say that your primary project in life is you. You are your primary project in life. Primary means first. What I mean by that is you're the thing that you have to work on first and foremost um, so that you can do better work in the world around you. You know, you might say, you know, through selflessness, you know, the projects that you have to bless other people and develop them is more important. But, but the thing is, if you don't, if you don't work on you, if you don't become a strong person, then, then you won't get very far in your calling in the world. Uh, that, that's what I mean. Uh, so we need to be people not just who want to do powerful things in the world. It's good to know your purpose. It's good to want to complete your purpose on earth to have a meaningful life. But you can't just want to be uh, purposeful. Uh, you have to be strong enough to pull off your purpose in the world. 
And that's an important thing. That's why I say your primary project in life is, is you. Um, you are defined not just by your ambitions in the world, but by your strength to pull off your ambitions in the world. Hopefully they're godly ambitions. Uh, to defeat you in life, to defeat me in life, usually what, what Satan does is he doesn't attack our calling. He doesn't attack us head on. He doesn't try to dissuade us from doing good things in the world. Instead, he'll just work, weaken us personally. He attacks from the side or he attacks from behind. He'll send chaos into your personal life. He'll get you to make unwise personal choices. He doesn't have to attack you head on. He just nibbles at your heels until you give up. And that's his style. So, uh, so how do we become strong uh, is the question. What does, it, what does it take practically for us to be a, a strong person? How should we characterize that? Well, uh, we're in a sermon series on the life of the Apostle Paul, uh, arguably the greatest missionary and church planter in, 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 in history. Um, And we know, if you've been following along, you know that when Jesus called Paul, when he gave him his life calling, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That can be uh, alternately translated. I will show him how much he must endure for my name. In other words, it's not what Paul would do, but what would be required of him in the doing of it. Jesus highlighted that right away when he called Paul to his great church planting mission. Well, our story for today is from Acts chapter 16. It's a little bit longish. Uh, it's printed in the inside of your program. You can follow along in your program on your smartphones, or you can just read along on the big screen. This is from Acts chapter uh, 16. So Paul and his little team, they're still, they're still in uh, a town called Philippi, uh, which is in, in northern Greece, uh, and they have just entered Europe for the first time and, and, and just made Europe's very first Christians. So it's a kind of cool point in the story. Uh, and, uh, and they've been uh, bopping around in Philippi for a while, preaching the gospel, doing some ministry. Uh, pick it up at paragraph number two. Once. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, and that might have been to the river, Uh, where believers gathered for prayer, not like a church or anything, so they're out in the open. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So uh, this this poor girl slave uh, was possessed by a demon, and this demon, through spiritual knowledge, uh, predicted some things or at least convinced people that it could predict the future. And, and it was uh, creepy enough that uh, the people uh, gave uh, the slave's owners money for her fortune telling. Anyway, the slave followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Footnote, that's true. So the demon was shouting out truth in a very annoying way. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So um, uh, Paul cast the demon out of the girl. Uh, which is good, uh, but it's also kind of bad uh, for her owners. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. That's false, but that was the charge. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. That's always an easy sell to the crowd. You say, ah, these religious people are disrespecting our culture, disrespecting our traditions, disrespecting who we are. Uh, That's always an easy sell, an easy attack against Christianity. And so the crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Well, that's nice. After they had been severely flogged, really bloodied and bruised, 
they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully because they had started a riot. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It would have been incredibly uncomfortable. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaking. At once, the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. This was not just an earthquake, but obviously a supernatural move of God. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Better to kill himself than to be tortured to death uh, for a failure. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household as well. The jailer probably lived right there in the prison complex. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. They made a decision to give their life to Christ right there on the spot. Surely they didn't understand everything about the gospel, but they knew enough to get started. So they set a meal before them. The jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. He did good for his family as well. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. They get a, they get a free pass. The magistrates uh, thought better of uh, torturing them and said, Ah, just let them go. They'll run out of town. We won't hear from them anymore. But Paul said to the officers, Yeah, they beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens which Paul had not mentioned before. Roman citizens got special treatment and, they, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. So now Paul is insisting on the rights of his citizenship, which he had kept secret to that point. No, 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 no. They did us wrong. Now they're going to treat us with dignity. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city instead of just kicking them out. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. She was the first uh, convert, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left on their own terms. It's a nice little... It's a nice little story. Let's just go through uh, the various episodes of it really quickly. And I want you to think about what it takes to be a strong person. Uh, there was a demon in this uh, little slave girl that followed them around. And the demon's strategy wasn't to, wasn't to attack Paul and Silas head on, right? Because the demon didn't say, they're lying, don't listen to them. The demon just join them in their message. These people are telling you about the one true God and telling you how to be saved, which was a true thing for the demon to say. But, but what was happening there is the demon was trying to include itself into the ministry, right? Satan doesn't try to defeat you head on. Satan just tries to corrupt what you're doing little by little, to get on the inside, to make space for himself until, you know, he can do something to betray your cause. It's just, I could preach a whole sermon on that, but obviously that's what uh, this demon and the slave girl uh, was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, first note of the story is that Paul put up with this demon for, for days, evidently, just several days. Uh, and when he wanted to, he turned around and cast the demon out like that. But he put up with that for several days. Why? Why didn't he just handle that in the first moment? He could have exorcised the girl right away. And I don't know exactly, I mean, I have thoughts on why Paul put up with it for so long, but I'm sure that he did it mindfully. Obviously, he thought it through, didn't he? 
he didn't just do a knee-jerk reaction. He sort of was very patient with the situation, and he let it unfold over days. He gave it careful consideration. In other words, he chose his response very thoughtfully, very mindfully. And he chose rightly, I would guess, uh, because once he threw down and cast out the demon, well, then his ministry ground to a halt because, you know, he started a, a riot and he was thrown in prison. So whatever he was doing on the streets stopped as soon as he exercised the girl. So I don't know exactly how he did it, but he, but he chose the wiser path. It gave him a few extra days of ministry in Philippi, ministry that, that probably ended with the conversion of many people. Uh, so his mindfulness and his patience... Uh, paid off in that situation. Okay, second note. Uh, In retrospect, by the end of the story, we know that as soon as he was seized and as soon as they brought out the rods to beat him, to torture him and his buddy Silas, we know that he could have demanded, based on Roman citizenship, a fair trial right away. Evidence. Like, actually, I wasn't advocating anything against your customs, right? He could have demanded a trial right at that moment before they started whacking him with sticks. What's your question? What's your question? Let let the story bother you a little bit. What bothers you about this? Do I need to pass out more bookmarks? What bothers you about that? why make the choice to get beaten? I mean, it's not hard, right? I mean, that's puzzling. Like, he could have said, ah, I'm a Roman, and they would not have beat him with sticks. You know, tortured him, flogged him severely. Not just flogged him, but it says flogged him severely. I mean, how many of you, if given the choice, would avoid torture? How many of you would accept the torture? I just want to check. This is blue water. You never know who's out there in the crowd. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I could speculate on why he does it like that. You know, I mean, Jesus did call him and say, yeah, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Clearly, the dude's not afraid of suffering. We know that much. But the fact is, he chose in that moment. He didn't do a knee-jerk reaction, did he? Somehow, he was mindful. He was carefully considering And the dude made the choice to be tortured. It's incredible strength. It's incredible self-possession. You know, it's like most people would just freak out. Ah! And he was like, what would be best for the gospel? You know what I mean? And so he chose in that instance as well. Third, third note. Uh, He gets tortured severely. He gets thrown in prison. He get, his feet get placed in, in stocks. Those are like shackles, big heavy shackles that anchor you to one spot. Incredibly uncomfortable. And then uh, when we tune into the story, he and Silas are singing praise choruses and hymns in prison in the middle of the night. Uh, a lot to be said about that. Maybe you've already heard sermons on that moment. Yeah, worship and thankfulness is a big deal. But what I want to point out is obviously... He's choosing his response in a big way. This is a guy that just like, all right, now I'm just going to rest. Silas, we need to recover. No, they're like, hey, Silas, how about we sing some hymns for the sake of our spirit and for the sake of everybody else in the prison who, who, who are listening? Uh, and he influenced those people in the prison around him because when the doors flew open, they didn't run away. Instead, they listened to see what Paul would say next. It's an incredible, mindful, self-possessed choice in that moment. I mean, we would have totally excused him for taking a little nap. But he's like, now what would be best for the gospel? Choosing his responses. Fourth note, earthquake, doors fly open, chains fall off. He could have escaped. He didn't. I don't know, if I'm in a developing world prison, I've been tortured, my feet are in stocks, there's an earthquake, there's a supernatural miracle, and my chains fall off, I'm thinking, well, this is God telling me I should go, obviously, and I would have gotten my butt out of there um, and, you know, gone to find some of my Christian friends and gotten a bowl of soup, I don't know, Um, but I would have, you know, I would have taken that to mean go. 
But he doesn't. He pauses, and in a very mindful way, he said, well, is it time to escape or not? Just because I can get out of this situation now, should I? Or is it a more powerful statement for me to use my freedom to choose to stay in this mess for just a little while longer and see what might be done for good? Extraordinary self-possession, extraordinary mindfulness. Uh, Finally, at the end, fifthly, uh, he could have taken the quick exits. The magistrates send officers in the morning and say, well, now they can leave, you know. And, and maybe that should have been the signal to Paul. Well, now we have official permission to go. Obviously, we should go. This part of the story is done. But then, then, he insists on the rights of his Roman citizenship, what he could have done at the very beginning. Then he makes a big stink. says, no, 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 you mistreated us. And the magistrates were like, oh, crap, or whatever that is in Greek, I'm not sure. And, and, uh, and they come and, you know, they're, they, they wring their hands. Why did he do that? Well, you know, pretty, it's pretty obvious why, why they did that because when Paul and Silas finally left the city, the magistrates from that moment on would have been very, very careful with how they treated other Christians because this was hanging over their head now. It's like, oh, everybody knows that we tortured people we had no right to torture. We're going to be nice to these Christians for a little while and that allowed the church in Philippi to grow. It was an ingenious little little plan that Paul had, and indeed the church in Philippi grew to thousands and became incredibly influential in in that reason. On first pass, when you read this story, this is a story about Paul and Silas being seized and tortured and driven out of town. On second pass, this is a story about Paul being in control the whole way. I mean, which is it? Which is it? Did Paul control the circumstances? No, not really, but, you know, he kind of responded to them in an influential way. But did Paul control Paul? Oh, yeah. Paul controlled Paul the whole way. Paul was strong the whole way. And as a result, you know, great fruitfulness, among other things, the jailer and his whole household make a decision uh, for faith in God. And it's just an impressive story. Let's, Let's just pause and give snaps to Jesus. Nice story. Say, nice story, God. Gladys in the Bible. Anyway, somewhere along the way, Paul learned the critical importance of being a strong person. And obviously, Paul needed to be a strong person. Uh, I've used this, this, uh, this term a few times in the sermon, mindfulness, uh, which is a term that gets used a lot in, oh, like recovery programs, for instance. The idea that you don't just react. You try to be mindful about what's going on. Uh, about why you feel the way that you do and why you might choose to do the things that you do. You take a moment to kind of engage your higher mind and make good choices. I like the term mindfulness. I use it a lot in my own life. Uh, It's not a bad term, especially if you contrast it with the term that Paul used a lot, fleshliness or the flesh. You have on one side sort of the higher mind, this idea of being conscious and and self-possessed, and then the idea of being fleshly, which is just letting your fleshly appetites dictate what you do, or your, your uh, quick-flash emotions determine what you do, kind of flying off um, the handle. Um, so I like mindfulness as, as a term. Um, Paul talked about things like this uh, quite a bit. This, you know, he wouldn't have described it this way because this was 2,000 years ago, but, but the way I see it, Paul talked a lot about whether your brain was programmed by your higher mind, your spiritual mind, or whether your brain was programmed by your fleshliness and your shallow emotions and your your quick-fire flesh. You know, what programs your brain? Is it the higher mind or is it the, the lower flesh? What programs your brain? And he was fascinated uh, by that topic. And all of his, almost all of his letters to churches, uh, he talks about it in one way or another. To the Galatians, he talked about the contrast between the life by the spirit versus life by the flesh. Spirit versus flesh. Spirit versus flesh. That's a very Paul um, phrase. Do you live by the spirit? Do you think by the spirit? Or do you live or think by the flesh? Uh, to the Corinthians, he talked about spirit versus, versus mind. At least most of the modern translations use the word mind. I think probably 
brain is a better word. Do you live according to your brain, that is your, your physical processor, or do you live according to your spirit or your higher mind? He talked about that. He said, sometimes I pray with my, with my mind, with my brain. Sometimes I think about what I pray, and sometimes I pray by the spirit. I just flow in the Holy Spirit and let the prayers come out from that, that place within me that is mystical and higher. Uh, sometimes he talked about the, the new man versus the old man. Am I going to live according to my new self or according to my old self? And both are at work in me, he would say. He said that to the Romans in Romans 7. He says, there's part of me that, that is willful and in control, and then there's part of me that's controlled by sin. He said, there's part of me where sin is in my members. My body does stuff that sin tells it to do, and apparently my spirit has no control over it. There's this, there's this war raging in me. Your higher self, your lower self. And Paul talked about this all the time. Um, Paul, Paul talked about the spirit of Christ in us, that spark of God at work in us. We are a mixed bag. You know, we're all of us mixtures of, of high and low, good and bad. But Paul knew there was good in there, and we needed to get touch with that spark of God in each of us. I think of it as the miracle at my core. I want to live out of the miracle at my core. I know there's a miracle in there. I know it's actually the heart of me. I just want to be in touch with it and let it flow. And sometimes my flesh or my brain or my shallow thinking or shallow emotions get in the way Anyway, mindfulness is, is, is basically saying this. I'm not going to just react to things. I'm going to choose a response. And, and hopefully it's a, it's a higher response. Are you with me? You understand the concept? Paul was fascinated by this concept. Where I'm at personally, uh, I think when things are, are really horrible in my life, like when something terrible has happened, super crisis, I usually react out of my, my higher mind. I'm usually very mindful in those moments. If, uh, you know, I always say I'm a, I'm a good guy to have in a bar fight. How often do you get in fights in bars, Pastor? Never mind about that. What I, what I mean is, what I mean is that, you know, if, if we're together and something, some terrible crisis happens, I'm... I do okay in those moments, in those crisis moments. I, and and I, I've been that way my whole life. I just kind of have this mindful self-control when the, when the stuff hits the fan. Uh, I do okay. But when things are just sort of bad, uh, I often lose my temper. In high pressure, I do great. In medium pressure, I often don't do great. I don't know why that is. I'm just kind of making that confession to you. Uh, but I have a short temper, you know, like traffic or something like that. It's like, I'm not very spiritual in traffic, you know. But in those moments in life that are truly traumatic, truly sad, truly sad, I, I typically do. Okay, I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you uh, can relate. Uh, given a bit of centering, even in traffic situations, I usually find, you know, the stillness in the storm. I mean, but it just takes me a while. That's me. Just to say, we're all on our own arc in this adventure. Uh, signs of not being a strong person are, are that, you know, flying off the handle. People who say, oh, you made me do it, or hey, what did you expect me to do? That's a bad sign. That means that you're not being mindful uh, at all. People who think that, that because the situation made them feel a certain way, they had to honor the way that they felt, that's not a good sign. Uh, it's easy to honor your feelings too much. If they say, well, you know, I didn't feel comfortable, as if that's an excuse. It's like, Paul probably didn't feel comfortable while they were beating him with rods, but he was nonetheless mindful, you know, and not all of us can take torture as well as he took it, but... You know, at least that's, that's the goal. People say, well, it wasn't fair, so I quit. If that's all it takes to make you quit, Satan's going to have a very easy time stifling you in life. Because have you noticed that not a lot of things are terribly fair uh, in life? I, I say it this way. I say it to myself this way a lot. Feelings are good information that should often be honored. 
but feelings should never be in charge. Feelings are good information. Feelings need to be honored. But feelings should not be in charge in life. They don't have that kind of authority. Um, so you could say the same about fleshly desires or fleshly appetites. You know, it's like the desire to eat. Well, that's, that's good information when you feel a desire to eat. And that desire should be honored. You should eat. You know, I try to do it almost daily. Um, but you don't want to be a slave to food, right? So hunger should not be in charge or mouth pleasure should not be in charge. Few of us these days, you know, are ever truly hungry, but we nibble when we shouldn't and we eat crap when we shouldn't and stuff like that. You know, you should pursue romance. You should pursue a life mate. There's nothing wrong with that, but your hormones should not be in charge, period, end of that subject. Um, you know, you should, you should rest well. Fatigue needs to be honored. That feeling of tiredness or being burnt out needs to be honored, but it shouldn't be in charge. You don't want to be a lazy person, you know. You need to be ambitious. That drive for success and even that drive for dominance, that should be honored, but it should be tempered by, by principles and priorities. Anyway, Paul, Paul was annoyed by that girl at the beginning of the story, uh, but he, he let it go for a few days before he pulled the plug. He was treated unjustly, but he waited for the best opportunity to redress his situation. He was in great pain physically, probably emotionally too. It's hard to get stripped naked and beaten with rods in public. That is not good for the ego. Um, but he chose joy for the sake of his spirit and for the sake of the prisoners in the jail around him. He was offered a quick escape, but he chose patience and solution building and future thinking. The guy, the guy was strong. There is a you in you that is not so weak that he or she is a victim of circumstances. Even if those circumstances can't be immediately changed. And I believe that because God is at work in your life and God is incredibly creative. And I think Paul thought a lot about this truth. No matter what the situation, God's at work and God is good. Good can come out of this situation. Here's how we said it in Romans 8. Maybe some of you have memorized this verse. God works things, excuse me, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you love God, if you're purpose-minded and realize that God has called you to purposeful things, you don't panic. And you recognize that in all circumstances, even if they're nasty, evil circumstances, God can still work good in some fashion. You know, try to find godly purpose in the moment of stress or pain. You might not know what God is doing, but you can still probably get a sense for what you can do to make it easier for God to work. You can still choose a righteous, patience, loving, wise response. Keep faith. Maintain positive expectation, even if somebody is beating you with a stick. That should be a bumper sticker. Be positive, even when somebody is beating you with a stick. Be confident because the whole world is afraid. And confidence is something that the whole world will run toward if it finds it. Act selflessly, of course. Be super mission-minded. What might best display the gospel here? Things that you can tell yourself. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on those things. Meditate. Put your mind there. All right, how to cultivate mindfulness. Let's just end with a few tips. We'll call it good. And these are, you know, my summary and, and formulation of ways for you to cultivate that sort of mindfulness and self-possession and personal strength that you will find vital if you want to live a life of godly purpose in the world. Uh, number one, uh, I would say, um, you know, meditate on these things, Paul said. I would say meditation. Meditation. 
Meditation as a practice gets popular in waves in society, you know, different kinds of time. It's, I think it's getting popular uh, again uh, because people realize that the brain gets messed up and they try to kind of go behind of surfacey thought and get to that more central place in life. Uh, meditation is something that gets talked about in Scripture all the way back to the time of Abraham, you know, like three, 3,500 years ago or longer. Um, uh, so it's all over uh, Scripture. It's certainly all over the Psalms. Early Christians often spoke of being in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the Apostle John said. Peter had his revelation to take the gospel to the Gentiles when he was in the Spirit on the rooftop. Just, I don't know what that means, but, you know, just kind of like not thinking too hard, just communing at the, in the miracle at your core, just communing with that most central part of you. Um, there is a, there's a solid reality in the universe that doesn't need to be felt physically and doesn't need to be figured out mentally. It's just there, and it's good, and it's powerful, and it's noble, and it's excellent, and it's praiseworthy, and all of those things that Paul says live out of that space. Not the frantic feeling and processing that tends to dominate our daily life. Um, uh, years ago, um, I had uh, what was the most powerful supernatural experience of my life. Uh, somebody was, was praying for me, and the Holy Spirit fell upon me. I was asking for some help with my depression, a condition to which I have been prone in my life. And God just kind of fell on me, and, and my body collapsed, and I had an out-of-body experience. It sometimes happens when the Spirit comes upon people. And, and the way I experienced it was that God just kind of took me, I don't know if it was out of my body or in my body, and it just took me someplace else. Um, and and, and it, felt like this, it felt like a room, but it was completely dark. It didn't feel dark, it just was dark. There was just an absence there. It was like a void. And then I felt the presence of God come into that place. And I didn't see the presence of God, but I just, I just knew He was there. And then He spoke to me, but He spoke to me without words. Right? Nothing registered in my mind. He just, he just said in some sort of mysterious, mystical way, good job, I love you. You know, without words, but I just knew that was what he was saying. And then gradually I came back to consciousness and I was a mess the rest of the night. I couldn't walk for a while. They dumped me in the back of an SUV, took me back to the place we were staring in. Most powerful supernatural experience of my life. God came to me in a place the core of my core, and just said, yeah, good job, I love you. You know, it's it's at the very center of my identity. I tell that story because that's the place I try to go when I meditate. I try to get to that place that's just, it's full of nothing, (laughs) you know? There's just nothing there but the presence of God. There are no words, but there's communication. And to kind of live out of that space from time to time. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I think meditation is a willingness to be mystical. And we need that as human beings. My meditation is mostly designed to escape the brain. (laughs) And it helps me achieve clarity. We're going to be exploring that sort of thing quite a bit at the upcoming all-church retreat, end of August. I encourage you to sign up for it. We're we're going to do sort of a, a day in the life of a blue water adventurer blue water traveler and, and that sort of practice is one of the things that we're going to explore. Get in on that. I think sign-ups go maybe, up maybe next week, Antonio. Be a, yes, next week. The registration page will be up. Uh, number two, uh, meditation is number one. Number two, there are key virtues you have to practice uh, and, and the number one virtue is probably thankfulness. Ben talked about worshipfulness uh, earlier and very close to the same thing, right? You practice being grateful to God. Paul talked about this a lot. Paul was obsessed with thankfulness. He was obsessed with it. Um, He spoke about it all the time. This is what he said to to Colossians. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule at your core, in your guts, is what it says in the Greek. Uh, To which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdoms, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your guts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like, he couldn't write a sentence without saying, be thankful. Um, And you see this all over the epistles. I'm not talking about comparative thankfulness. You know that proverb. Um, I, I felt bad that I didn't have any shoes until I saw a guy who had no feet. Don't do that. Um, it's, it's complicated. Um, well, I mean, you can do that, but it's complicated. What I'm talking about is practicing thankfulness as a brain hack. You know what I mean by brain hack? It, it's, it's a trick that moves you forward. It conditions you. The more you practice thankfulness, the better you will react in hard situations. That's it. That's it. It's like going to the gym and being fit. You know, don't rationalize your way into thankfulness. Just practice thankfulness as a conditioning, and you'll be thankful that you did. That's what that means. And then finally, and we'll end with this, um, I would like to suggest that you want to be a strong person, that you should get good at silence. Silence. And, and I'm talking about expressive silence. I'm not talking about silence like, I'm just going to withdraw from the world and I'm going to be shy and protective. I'm not talking about that sort of silence because there's a type of silence that says a lot. I'm talking about saying things with silence. And I think this is a practice that healthy humans need to, need to get in touch with. When things are really bad in my life, when things just suck with a capital S, um, um, sometimes... You know, I, I lose my ability to pray well. And so what I will do, I will sit before God and I will very expressly say nothing. Do you know what I mean by that? I will sit in front of God and I will just be silent. I will not say things. And then the communication lies in what is not said. I'm not complaining. I'm not panicking. I'm not expressing fear. I am silent. And that takes an incredible strength to be silent when things suck. It takes an incredible strength to be silent when people are beating you with rods or beating you with words or beating you with injustice or disrespecting you. A choice for silence in those moments is an incredibly powerful choice. Because it has to be a choice, doesn't it? It has to be a choice. And you're choosing to wait. You're choosing to be mindful. And very often that starts with silence. Maybe you can get around to saying something, but it's going to start with being silent. You understand what I'm saying? Silence. Silence can be a tremendous way to trust God. It's also a great way to hear the Spirit and shut up the flesh. It's hard to make the flesh be quiet, isn't it? You know, and even if your mouth is quiet, quieting your body or quieting your brain, uh, it's hard, but it starts with quieting your mouth. That's where it starts. Uh, In our story today, Paul made great use of the act of saying nothing didn't he? All sorts of things that he could have said that he chose not to, until it was time to say something. But that started with silence. I've given you a lot of food for thought today. Uh, Maybe some of it applies to your whole life. I'd like to end with just that, just an an exercise of silence, just to kind of get it flowing through us, and then we'll kind of listen to what the Lord says, speaking back to us. Maybe there's something in your life that is really bugging you. And if there's not something in life that's bugging you, something that's eating away at you, a grief that's gnawing at your soul, an injustice that's making your brain ragged, a pain that's making your body uncomfortable. If there's not something like that, God bless you. You're amazing. Uh, But if there is, Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to bring it before the Lord. I'd like you to say, Lord, here it is. And then let's spend 60 seconds and not say anything about it, shall we?
doesn't sound like much, but I found it to be uh, a great workout for the soul. All right, what is that thing? Are those things that's just really bugging you? Let's close your eyes. Let's center down into that miracle at your core. And let's bring that thing in front of God without words. Sit there with it and say nothing. This is our meditation before you this morning, Father. Thank you. God bless you. Some of you finally probably found that very easy. Some of you probably found that an exercise in raging chaos. It's hard uh, sometimes to uh, center down and be quiet before the Lord. Whether you know it or not, God brought you here to become a strong person and to become the most powerful version of you. Uh, that he has in mind. So I just bless you in Jesus' name to exercise to that end. A good life starts with a good you, a good you in pursuit of a meaningful life. And I just best bless you on that uh, adventure. Um, join us in what we're doing. Join the newcomers class. Get into an Ohana group. Sign up for the All Church Retreat. And, uh, and pursue the strength that you need to pursue. Amen.